the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into our three. If it's Tuesday, we have Hugh Holman, and we have Hugh Holman in studio. We are delighted to do so. He is a former mayor of Tempe. He's an attorney in town, a polymath, and a factotum to our community. Uh, and uh, we have been having and hosting Hugh ooh, since about April of 2020 every Tuesday. Uh, we started uh, to go over um, our mutual and uh, small club. We could have been probably – we probably could have fit into a phone booth. Small club of people who were resisting the Harrison Bergeron uh, handicap handicapper general notion that we all uh, were forced into during COVID. And um, – we have uh, kept the conversation uh, going ever since then. Hugh, welcome back to the studio. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Well, it's uh, been a delight to be had for the last two years, and I'm, uh, I, I think the concept that we were all stuffed into a phone booth during COVID uh, is, is exactly the irony that we needed to, to yeah. uh, start that conversation with, uh, given that uh, we were all to be locked down in our own homes, separated, segregated, uh, masked, and uh, eventually vaccinated. Some will know that I often say we wouldn't have youth problems or child problems or adolescent problems in the society if we didn't have adult problems. I think you could equally say or analogously say we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't have citizen problems in America if we didn't have government problems. Um, that uh, the problems we have in this country, because men are not perfect, as James Madison put it, they are not angels. We require government. It requires something of a government. It requires the government to be good. It might even require, in the Aristotelian sense, that we have a government as good as the people. It might be too much to expect it to be better than the people. But when you look at a lot of the crises you and I talk about, Hugh, uh, a lot of it stems from uh, the universal uh, misapplication of power and universal idiocy that comes from and emanates from government uh, or those who want to control lives using and wielding the power of government. Right now, this could be an issue for a lot of things, but right now we're looking at this when it comes to the Silicon Valley Bank issue. Uh, as I mentioned, you're a polymath. You know a lot, a lot about a lot of things. One of the things you know about is this issue as well. So, what is you thinking when it comes to everything that's emanating out of the story on Silicon Valley Bank? Well, certainly that setup opens a, a trunk load of issues. Yeah. So, I'll I'll try to grab the first one that you'd yeah. like yeah. me to grab. The last is, one will be hope. Yeah, <laughs> as in Pandora's box. Well, yeah. in fact, your monologue in the first hour talks about a hopefulness that socialism is is on the wane. Yeah. And I think brings up the real point that it is not on the wane, that the very people who are most socialist in our society have gained the levers of power, that uh, we've got Bernie Sanders in control of one of the most important committees in Congress uh, dictating policy for health and education. Uh, let's just add the word welfare as we used to, and then we'd know what he's really up to. And to say that somehow the socialist agenda is on the wane in, in contrast to the facts of who's in charge should scare us all. And that's where I think the Silicon Valley bank collapse is most distressing to me. So it didn't take the New York Times but a day 
uh, March 13th to get Elizabeth Warren uh, onto its editorial pages, opining that the Silicon Valley Bank collapse is caused because we, as Republicans, nasty Republicans during the Trump administration, um, weakened Dodd-Frank. That was the 2008 effort to uh, address the 2008-9 effort to address the banking collapse that occurred that uh, people say gave, gave rise to the recession in 2008-9. I would argue it's actually just the opposite. And in fact, we're seeing the same thing. We have a Democratic administration that has uh, fouled our economy to the point that we had massive spikes in inflation, under productivity, people disappearing from the workforce, unaccounted for, not including children, uh, that we can't account for. And now they blame the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on failed failure to impose stricter governmental mental regulation, the use of government power to save us from these things. Let's actually unpack what really happened. There were two major bank failures in the last few days. They were Silicon Valley Bank causing ripples on the West Coast primarily, and Signature Bank, the third largest banking collapse in U.S. history on the East Coast. And I believe one of its founders, certainly board members, is none other than the Frank of Dodd-Frank, the very tool that Elizabeth Warren is touting as having been the cure if we'd only stuck with it uh, to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. But the reality is this. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank can be traced directly to its major failure. Its major failure was believing in the U.S. government and this economy and this country because Silicon Valley Bank invested heavily in U.S. treasuries and bonds. It's a very, it was at the time a very stable investment, fixed interest rates. And they did not predict that the Biden administration would so gum up the economy that we would end up with spiked inflation rates and the Fed responding uh, by increasing interest rates to try to stop inflation. And when you hold a fixed interest asset that you've bought, let's say, for $100 and it's got a fixed interest rate, uh, a low one, if interest rates go high, the value of that asset plummets because your relative value of getting a small return at low interest rates on a $100 fixed bond is much less valuable than a new $100 bond with a 9% interest rate or a higher interest rate. So their asset portfolio collapsed out from under them. Their failure was to believe in the United States and the value of this country, the stability of the economy, and that things were looking good. That is truly the failure, Ms. Warren. So when you talk about the fact that it is the failure of the, uh, of the government to stand by Dodd-Frank and its regulatory structure, why don't you look yourself in the mirror that you and your handmaidens and you and, and Joe Biden are primarily responsible after attacking a successful administration, at least with respect to its economic policies and the uh, enthusiasm that this country continued even during COVID. We came out of COVID uh, with uh, impressive results because we had policies in place that brought us out of that COVID. Now, I object to some of the things that I think caused that inflation. Spending $6 trillion unnecessarily caused the inflation as we came out of that, uh, out of that pandemic shutdown. And yet the Biden administration didn't think that was enough and spent trillions more. 
and added even more money to an economy that was already overinflated with too few people working. That's what drove interest rates up because it drove inflation. And the Fed thought to stop inflation uh, from deteriorating fixed price earnings by people who are on fixed income, Social Security and other things. The worst thing that happens to the U.S. government is inflation goes up. The CPI automatic inflator on all of its bills kicks in and we then see our bills increasing to keep up with inflation. So we're just driving ourselves crazy. And that's what happened here. So Silicon Valley Bank's collapse was entirely as a result of their misplaced faith in the U.S. government and its securities, its bonds and treasuries. That is the the saddest thing from this story to me, that now we recognize or banks will recognize that the U.S. treasuries and bonds are not particularly safe when you're faced with a volatile economy. Well, that should be obvious. But Silicon Valley Bank bet on the United States, and they lost. Thank you for that, um, Hugh. I appreciate it, as I'm sure the audience does. As you were speaking, it occurred to me that it's quite interesting that Signature uh, Bank, that's the Barney Frank Bank, seems to be making a lot less news and a lot less headlines. It's amazing that the New York Times just forgets to include that. Especially when you consider that it is the third following the second largest uh, collapse uh, of a bank in, uh, I guess you could say, American history. Uh, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Frank, uh, he cashed out well with, uh, with Signature. Cash compensation of $121,750 and stock awards of $180,182 just last year alone. One wonders the man who was so uh, impressed with himself for using the phrase clawback when banks failed. One wonders if there will be any effort to claw back any of that from his directorship of that bank, given its failure. But in any event, I do, I do, I do want to note the point that... Uh, this is an administration right now that seems to want to take zero responsibility for anything on their watch and has seemingly no statute of limitations on what they can blame the Trump administration for. For whatever the Trump administration may or may not have done with regard to the regulations of Dodd-Frank, there were no bank failures under the Trump administration. Well, let's remind oneself, uh, who was in control of Congress at the time? Also true. Also true. I am Seth Leapson. He's Hugh Hallman, and he and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I am Seth. He is Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe, attorney in town, educator. For as much as we um, love to quote James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist Papers. By the way, before I go there, I was having a discussion with someone the other day, Hugh, and you and I are both graduates of law schools, different law schools. Uh, Many in the audience are, too. And I was having this interesting conversation with someone, uh, a physician, who I said, you know, if you want to learn about the Constitution, I quoted an old teacher of mine, Charles Kessler, you know him, said law schools are about the worst place to go to learn about the Constitution because they don't actually teach the Constitution. They teach what people have written about the Constitution. And he was really kind of surprised to hear that. He thought that was odd. They don't teach the Constitution in law schools. And I said, no, they, they really do not. They teach what other people wrote about it, the Supreme Court decisions on it, maybe law review articles on it, but they don't really ever go through the text itself. And he couldn't, he just couldn't believe it. And I said, well, I mean, talk to the next five attorneys you know 
and ask them if they can name the three authors of the Federalist Papers or if they ever read the Federalist Papers in law school, much less the Constitution. I think I'm right in saying what I'm saying, and I think I'm right in saying that you would find a dearth of good responses to that question. Is that your understanding, too, or your memory or your oh, practice? Absolutely, and, okay. and, and it is in part because the study of the law is about studying how to think about the law and looking at people's reasoning about the law and not the font of the law. And so it would be equal to say that if you really wanted to have an elements of the law, you would start with the Code of Hammurabi and the Old Testament and work your way forward to understand the true groundings of this. But law school is not about understanding what our founders put together in the Constitution and what they meant by it. It's uh, about understanding where we are today. And that means the First Amendment that has been stretched so far that uh, people can uh, accuse uh, anyone who's in the public sphere uh, of all kinds of terrible behavior, and most uh, citizens of this country believe that if something is published in a newspaper, online, what have you, and it's a lie, the the subject of that uh, lie could sue. And the reality is that if the subject of that lie is a public person, they can't sue. No. Uh, that the lie has to be have been promulgated, having been published with uh, malicious intent. And how do you pr prove what malicious intent is? You have to be inside someone's heads. It's nearly impossible. So we, law school doesn't do any of that. And yet, By the way, the Constitution doesn't say anything about that. That came about as a decision in 1964. Hence my point right. that, that we spend our time now reading uh, decisions of the Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution. And in the last 150 years, very few of those authors of those opinions spent time talking about what the founders thought. That's why the movement that included uh, some stellar conservative justices in the last 30 years about original intent right. was so groundbreaking for, and, and alien. And alien. And alien. Uh, to many people. Read the Constitution? Yes, absolutely. What did the founders mean? That doesn't mean, that doesn't right. matter anymore. Right. It's a living, breathing instrument. That was what the left promulgated so that they could expand the powers of government over the rights of individuals and states. And that's been the pattern. So that's been going on for 200 years because those who like power, those who like to exercise it, are attracted to service in government. And those who like to be in the private sector to exercise their individual individual liberties and do what they'd like to do tend to end up in the private sector. And so you end up with an attractiveness, an attractive nuisance perhaps of power drawing to it people who want to exercise those levers and are happy to try to expand the distance they can push those levers uh, to exercise that authority. With that big piece here, I bring us back to a concept that was within those Federalist Papers that is baked into the Constitution, and it is a notion that sounds a little foreign to the modern ear for those of us in the conservative movement, and that is Madison writing about the fact that the Constitution is created because men are, and people, women, are imperfect. And that if angels had governed uh, us, we wouldn't need a constitution. But if um, men were angels, they wouldn't have to have these internal and external controls on how we behave. But because we're not angels, because we are imperfect human beings, we have to design a government that first controls the governed. That literally is in the Federalist Papers. And for somebody like me, you bristle a little bit at the notion that there's a totalitarian concept of controlling the governed. And then, as he says in the second part of that sentence, and then the government's got to control itself. Well, conservatives, we put most of our weight on that second part. But what was meant? This is the originalist 
theory that you're talking about, what should be taught in law schools. What was meant by that concept that the government has to control the governed? It wasn't the totalitarian socialist nonsense that AOC might be espousing uh, from the well of the House. It was about this great understanding that the human condition, that people get very passionate about things and that that passion brings with it a fervor that can cause people to rise up and do terrible things together, that they feed on one another. Well, that can't be true. It's exactly what even none other than Abraham Lincoln wrote about in 1838, I believe, in his speech to the Lyceum, talking about the, the fact that the, the U.S. will not be conquered by someone from abroad. No, that they that will not take a giant stepping across the ocean moats that we have. It will be by suicide that we will destroy our own structure and as a result kill our own society. And what was he talking about? He was talking about faction and passion that could destroy our society because at the time he was writing, there were lynchings going on. People were taking power into their own hands and doing all kinds of terrible things. Well, that's exactly what had gone on that founded, uh, that created the Constitution. We had all kinds of riotous behavior. And the saving grace that Madison understood and the other founders understood was by having separate little states, we would keep those passions and those riotous moments from spreading across these entire United States and protect us, that we would segregate that kind of crazy behavior within states because the issues of the day would not be national issues. And now here we are in the summer of 2020. We have devices that allow every single person to publish whatever they'd like and incite riotous behavior in their neighbors. And they did. And we saw riotous behavior in Los Angeles, in Portland, in many cities across these United States, including in the city of Scottsdale. Because if you're angry about uh, discrimination, what do you want to do? You want to attack Scottsdale Fashion Square and steal an iPad. Right. That kind of issue is something we've got to unpack uh, in how we now go forward as conservatives, because it is our failure to account for our own bad behavior that is stamping the imprimatur on that bad behavior of the summer of 2020. Yeah, let's pick up on that when we come back. Uh, I am Seth Leibson. He is Hugh Hallman. Federalist 51 is what we're quoting, folks, if you want to go back to it. This is the section on if men were angels and the great challenges to enable the government to control the governed and in the next place to oblige it to control it itself. Uh, the Abraham Lincoln Address is known as the Lyceum Address, 1838. Both important reading neither of which you'll get in law school. You'll get it here, though. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You may remember the uh, contretemps when Tom Cotton suggested in the New York Times the use of the Insurrection Act to put down to stop the riots of 2020, the, the riots of the summer of 2020. And it led to uh, an auto debate at the New York Times with mass resignations. Uh, Bill Keller had to step down, the longtime executive editor, uh, for how could you publish an article suggesting the use of federal law to stop uh, the use of riots? Uh, and as a political movement. As a political movement, as an expression of, uh, yes, uh, protected, what should have been protected political speech. This would have been around the same time. When um, Mr. Cuomo over at CNN said, whoever said that protests had to be peaceful, having himself, I guess, gone to law school but never read the language of the First Amendment. Um, the 
idea of the Insurrection Act was actually put into law in a string after a string of rebellions that uh, freaked the hell out of George Washington, John Adams, and subsequently Thomas Jefferson, the Whiskey and Shea Rebellions, and that and Madison. sort of thing. And Madison, absolutely right. And it got us to this point that in the Lyceum Address that you spoke of, Abraham Lincoln's famous address, it is about what happens when we stop believing in our institutions and when people do uh, – he used the word passion. He said passion had kept us together before, but as the generation of founders has dying out, it will no longer – we will no longer be able to point to and see the statues of those living men and those revolutionary soldiers and heroes. We are now going to only be saved by reason, he says, cool, cold, calculating – reason, and that reason must be based on the appreciation of the law, and the law is that which the founders gave us. He said specifically, let every man remember that to violate the laws to trample on the blood of his father, he meant founding fathers, on the blood of his father, and to tear the character of his own and his children's liberty. So the idea that uh, Republicans are a party of law and order, damn right we are. Damn right we are. With good reason. And with good reason, and not just not just order and not just law, but law and order for the purpose of something. Uh, there are tyrannical regimes that ins ins insist on law and order, too. It is the ends for which we are aiming to keep that law and order, and this, um, as, as was Lincoln's concern in 1838, and has been the concern of almost every Republican president since, that um, that if we if we don't have an appreciation for the law, we won't have order. Adam Carolla, I quoted yesterday, saying, "Perhaps if we had order, we don't need law." The truth is, they're symbiotically related. And 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 Washington understood that on down through right. uh, our. our uh, founders and those who read and understood. And so we have this notion of ordered liberty, the pillars, the posts between having order and having liberty and trying to maximize liberty while understanding that, as Madison did, that uh, liberty is to uh, faction what oxygen is to fire, that that liberty causes that faction. And what the goal was in our Constitution was to limit liberty to the least amount so that we do not destroy the very features of our government that give us the right to exercise that liberty. And here we have, you've talked about the fact that we want to make Orwell fiction again. Yes. We now have the sort of marriage of the brave new world and Aldous Huxley with George Orwell's 1984 An Animal Farm. Animal Farm talks about the takeover of the government, effectively, by people who then mouth language and use that language to destroy other people's liberty, to become the controlling elite. This sounds a lot like Elizabeth Warren. This sounds a lot like Kamala Harris. This sounds a lot like Bernie Sanders. This sounds a lot like Joe Biden, that they want now to use the language to control what those of us who believe differently can do that they are quite willing to muzzle us uh, with their boards of, uh, of uh, determination yeah, <laughs> uh, to make sure that people like us don't make the airwaves to talk about the fact that the response to COVID is absurd, that we knew who would be at risk. We knew this from the 1957 flu. We knew this from the 1918 flu. We now know that there's a lot of similarity between those things and the the activities that would have preserved health and protected health long term. What do I mean by that? Not just elderly people who might cons might come to the disease and face death, 
But the children who are now left without schooling, who are now bereft, who now face uh, suicidal ideations, and who are actually committing suicide, drug and alcoholism beyond belief, and making bad choices, which actually causes me to think, you know, conservatives, we're all about making the best choices we possibly can. And you, you, you interviewed in your fourth hour a guest who's all about making good choices. And I was delighted that uh, you're getting out there the notion that um, Choices Pregnancy Centers is available to people who've had a bad outcome in some ways. They're thinking, oh, I didn't want to be pregnant. Well, Planned Parenthood isn't the only place you can go uh, to get counseling and help. Isn't it interesting, Elizabeth Warren testified to and said several times last year she wants to shut those kinds of pregnancy centers down. Isn't that interesting? The tyrannical impulse. Pick up on that because I think it also is the is the is the thing that prevents federal judges from speaking at Stanford. Hugh Hallman is my guest. Welcome back uh, to the studio. I ended on a brief note there. This lack of appreciation for these things, Hugh, this lack of instruction uh, let us recall that the greatest act of censorship to have taken place in America over the last week took place at one of the most elite law schools in the country, at a law school, because they deigned to invite a federal judge who was appointed by Republicans to come and speak at the Federalist Society uh, chapter at Stanford Law School, uh, a speech that no one was mandated to go to, of course, and they had to shut the damn thing down because, heaven forfend, an alternative point of view be expressed here, a point of view that would be based in the originalism that you spoke of earlier. These students have no concept of what the Constitution is, and what they now need, it seems like, is protection from ideas uh, protection from ideas that they disagree with because they have been for the past 20 to 30 years coddled into the notion that there is only one way to think around here. There is only one way to practice and express your citizenship around here. And if you don't get your way or you hear something alien, the natural reaction is the closest thing to uh, violence that you would get, which would be uh, the shout, the shout down cens- form of censorship, the mob appeal to censorship. Short, after that, if that doesn't work, then of course we go into the scene that we saw in 2020, which was the uh, rioting of the Black Lives Matter movements, which is why, if I can just draw this connection here, uh, so many of us were so aghast at what took place on January 6th, uh, 2021. Bill will recall that uh, I usually come in here with my monologue written as we were watching it unfold on TV. I said, toss it away and give me silence for 20 minutes. I had to rewrite a whole new monologue. It was gratifying that unlike the riots of 2020, no Republican anyone had ever heard of and no conservative activist that anyone had ever heard of was involved in those riots. Um, it is uh, clever. It was clever for the Democrats to try and change that fact and paint the entire Republican Party, or at least the bulk of the Republican Party, with being responsible for the riots of uh, of uh, January sixth. And by the skin of our teeth, my gosh, by the skin of our teeth, between that and uh, and a. Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade, we still managed to eke out a majority in the 2022 midterms and put most of that back in the rearview mirror. But it is worth reminding, I think, uh, for those that are taken to this sort of thing, that 
this was a newsworthy event because of the violence that so shocked, I think, the Republican and the conservative conscience, as it should have shocked the entirety of America's conscience when they saw this taking place in 2020, but didn't. When the riot in Baltimore took place and Nancy Pelosi was asked about it, she said, people will do what people will do. Nothing Nothing more than a call to anarchy based on pure, raw political will and power. And it And that's not something... I'm sorry, what? And it continued. And it continued. And that's a very good point. And uh, that's why, you know, it was was of some satisfaction to see there were no Republicans of any note or conservatives of any note in January 6th, nor should there be. Well, in building on that, I would start with... Those of us there have been. That's correct. Those of us on the air at the time. And thank you to allowing me to be on the air. We were talking about covid and now watching riotous behavior take place in Los Angeles, in Portland, in Chicago, in Boston, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And while, yes, there were many peaceful protesters, one has to take responsibility for the damage one does in inciting people to behavior through language. And I am not going to be an apologist for anyone who had any source in starting the fuse, in lighting the fuse that caused January 6th. Just as I would criticize Nancy Pelosi for failing to immediately say violence is unacceptable in this society. It is the entire reason, in my view, at the very core, the nub of the core of the Constitution. It was our founders' first need to deal with passion. That is the subject of the concepts that Madison poured into the Federalist Papers. And we sitting here today, before 2020, had rarely seen behavior that gave rise to it. When we did see it during the um, Vietnam War protests and there was violence, every side denounced it. Every side denounced it. That's a very good point. And now George McGovern wanted nothing to do with the Black Panther movement. He wanted nothing to do with the violence and the Jane Fonda's. He want, they, you couldn't find the Ed Muskies or Ted Kennedy's part and parcel of that at all. They were Unlike, part of the peace movement. Right, exactly. And the whole point here is that suddenly right. we had the Speaker of the House stamper imprimatur right. on violent behavior. Right. And it continued. And it grew. And then it was excused. Oh, it was mostly peaceful. Mm-hmm. Well, that mostly part, the part that wasn't peaceful, you should have been outraged at. As we get angry for uh, uh, Muslims not calling out violent behavior among their own. Nice. Nice. We get angry at Democrats for not calling out violent behavior of their own. We as conservatives should call out that same behavior. And on these airways, you, I, my son, Lewis, and others denounced that violent behavior. Mm -hmm. And I find it ridiculous that there has been starting an attempt by conservatives to somehow excuse that behavior. There is no excuse. None. And if we excuse the behavior of January 6th and the language that wrote lit the fuse, we are stamping our imprimatur on the violence of the summer of 2020. And I found it inexcusable then, and I find the January 6th behavior completely inexcusable, and as a conservative for my lifetime, I am not going to provide a pass to those who would excuse it. It damages this movement, because then we have to explain them. We have to apologize for them. They are not my people. My people do not engage in violence as Madison and Lincoln in 1838 decried. 
violent behavior, riotous behavior is anathema to this society. And we must call that out immediately. As you noted in a prior segment, the founders were terrified by early uh, riotous behavior that gave rise to threats to the structure of our society. That it would destroy not just the buildings and people immediately at hand, but ultimately the structure that maximizes liberty for all of us. That's what was at stake. Lincoln understood it, and he understood that ultimately the passion and faction drove us into civil war. Well, why would they know that? Because they saw what was going on at the founding, and our founders put forward acts that most of us consider violative of the Constitution because they were so terrified that the Constitution itself would be destroyed. During the uh, 1780s, June 2nd, 1780, the same thing happened in, in Great Britain. 200 and some odd, 260 years before the events of January 6th, the parliament was stormed by protesters. And five days of riotous behavior destroyed London and caused many, many people to die. We understood that at our founding. We should understand it today and not excuse those people who would use violence for any source, any ends, any means. Amen. I am Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. A lot of you have been hearing me talk about Y-Refi for a while now, and if you still have some questions about what it could mean for you to invest with Y-Refi, they would delight in you giving them a call where they will happily put you in touch with any number of their very satisfied customers and clients in the Phoenix area who have invested with them and have been doing very, very well. Their number is 888-Y-REFI-34, and they'd like me to ask you how your IRA is doing. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or the Fed. You can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds, and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. Hugh, thank you for being with us this hour. Any concluding thoughts? The floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, and thank uh, thank you to your listeners for tuning in on this. Uh, I want to end with this idea that uh, George Santayana uh, expressed in his Life of Reason in, I think it was 1905. Mm -hmm. It was, quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, period, unquote. Now, that was repeated, that phrase, yet again, by uh, Winston Churchill in a speech to the Commons in 1948. He, he paraphrased a little bit, saying, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. And I think the condemned word is much more valuable, yeah. because that's what we're about these days. We've got folks on the left who want us not to know our history, not to understand that liberty is always in the balance uh, in this country. That we are working generally, generation to generation, to pass along the maximal liberty we can while dealing with challenges that we particularly face uh, during our uh, time here in on this earth and within this country. But now we are turning what used to be fiction, as you like to talk, it turned uh, George Or Orwell back into fiction here. We've got <laughs> 1984 is just one example of his work. I think Animal Farm is a, is a better example in some ways of what's truly going on now. Uh, the book that all of us should have read in late high, grade school or, or high school talking about, you may remember the line of the pigs who have now taken over the farm, uh, making sure that everybody understands four legs good, uh, two legs bad, right? 
uh, two legs bad, four legs good, so that that way we can know that human beings are evil. And then, of course, the poor horse and other animals are stuck out in the in the uh, in the farmlands while the pigs are enjoying the house and every other benefit that comes along with it. Sound familiar? Uh, that uh, allow us to use our uh, super jets to fly around the country, bemoaning uh, climate change, for example. Well, now we have Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. We really have a, a merging of Animal Farm in 1984 and, uh, and Brave New World. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got to recall our history and understand what Madison was trying to make sure we conveyed onto our future generations, that we have a pole of control that is order and a pole of liberty, and we're trying to stay between those two. And the left would keep moving that goalpost for control farther and farther to left, exercising greater and greater control. How do we know this? I give you the times. Let's talk COVID lockdowns and every other use of power by those in control who now decry the failures that they conducted and now blame, for example, Silicon Valley Bank for its failure by not using enough government control. No, it was investing in America's future that cost them. You and I ought to teach a literature course. Wouldn't that be fun? Folks, God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth and class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flint with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com